Welcome to the sermon podcast of Old Bridge Baptist Church. Our mission at OBBC is to make disciples of Christ who connect with God, others, ministry, and the lost. We pray that the following sermon will encourage you in your walk with Christ today. Visit us on the web anytime at obb.church. I hope you'll turn in your Bibles or navigate there on your phone. Uh, to that passage that was just read, Romans chapter 6. It's always important to follow along as someone teaches you the Word of God so that you might see that these things are true for yourself. Let's pause for one more word of prayer. Well, Father, the grass withers and the flower fades, but your Word, Lord, is eternal. Father, we long to hear from you, and Lord, we don't want to only be uh, hearers of your word, but we want to be doers of it. And so we pray, God, that by the power of your spirit, that you would apply your word to our lives. Give us tender hearts, Father, and uh, Lord, speak to each one, I I pray, according to your will and your ways. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. An 80-year-old man with sun-weathered skin stepped foot back into the palace of Egypt. After having been gone for some 40 years, having run away as a murderer and a failed liberator of his people, he had become a shepherd, content to make his way alone with his family out in the wilderness. But he had now returned some 40 years later, not under his own authority, but this time called and sent by God himself. You see, God saw the people of Israel and he knew them. He heard their groanings because of their harsh slavery to the Egyptians. And when the Israelites cried out to him, God answered them by sending them a deliverer. He sent them Moses. That's, of course, who I was speaking of. And so here Moses stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to proclaim on God's behalf. Do you remember his message? It's a simple message. Let my people go. That's the part of the message we always remember. But that wasn't the full message. You remember the second half of it? It was, let my people go. Why? That they might go out into the wilderness and serve me, says the Lord. In the Exodus, God set his people free from harsh slavery in Egypt, not so that they could go their own way, not so that they could scatter across the face of the earth and please themselves. God set his people free from harsh slavery in Egypt so that they would have the freedom to serve him. In Romans chapter 6, I think Paul uses this imagery of of slavery to teach a, a spiritual truth, a very important spiritual truth. But I don't want you to be distracted by the metaphor of slavery, right? I don't want you to, to think that by Paul using this metaphor of slavery that he is somehow endorsing human slavery. It's not the point. Don't be distracted by the metaphor. 
Paul is not endorsing slavery, particularly human slavery as it was practiced in our own history of our own country. The Bible nowhere endorses that kind of sinful behavior. But as I said, I believe Paul is using this metaphor of slavery to describe a spiritual truth. He's using it to describe for us a new and better exodus from slavery to sin. He's using this imagery to describe for us a a new and better exodus and how we have a new and better Moses, a better deliverer, God's own son, Jesus Christ. And here is the spiritual principle that we see at work here in really in both exoduses, but brought out so strongly here in the new exodus. True freedom is freedom to serve God. True freedom is the freedom not to serve sin, not to serve yourself, but true freedom is to serve God. It seems counterintuitive. Freedom seems like it should be the ability to pursue whatever pleases me the most. Right? That relationship, that habit, that secret pleasure, that success or that goal. It seems like freedom should be that I am the captain of my own ship. That's what freedom should be. That's what we think. No matter what God says or thinks. But in reality, freedom from God is no freedom at all. True freedom is the freedom to serve God, the God who made you. That's what freedom is. And the gospel of Jesus Christ that Paul preaches, that I'm preaching to you this morning, is the doorway into that freedom. We have been set free. And I have seven points for you this morning. Now don't get up and walk out. They're going to be brief points, okay? I I assure you. But seven points for you this morning from this text of Scripture Romans chapter 6, verses 15 through 23, pertaining to true Christian freedom. This is where the rubber meets the road, Christian. This is your daily Christian life. As you are freed from sin. And why have you been freed from sin? You have been freed from sin to serve the living God. And so the first point here is the point I've already kind of been making. First, your freedom in Christ is not a freedom to sin. This is what Paul says in verse 15. He says, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law but under grace? This is pointing back to the the previous verse that we talked about two weeks ago, verse 14, where Paul makes this statement that we are not under the law but under grace. He's declaring a freedom from the law. But don't conclude that a freedom from the law is a freedom to sin. Paul says, may it never be. May it never be. We are not under law in Christ. We are in a new era of salvation history. We are under grace. All we did under the law is break it. We couldn't keep the law if we had wanted to. In fact, back in Romans chapter 5, verse 20, Paul describes the law, this law that was so important to his Jewish brother and his Jewish countrymen. He describes it as something that sort of snuck in the side door late in time to 
not to save us, but to increase the trespass, to magnify it, to show us the need that we have for a Savior. So, Christian, you are not under the law, and that is good news. You are under grace. That's what Paul says here in, in Romans 6.15. You are under grace. Grace is God's unmerited favor. That means you do not deserve it. It is kindness from God that you do not deserve. But I love the way Paul describes us as being under grace. Grace is not just something you receive. It is something you are under. It's something that masters you. That transforms you. So we are not under law, but we are under grace. And as Paul says here, this does not mean that we are then free to live in sin. May genoita in the Greek. May it never be by by no means, or as a New Yorker would say, forget about it. Your freedom in Christ is not a freedom to sin. Could it be any clearer? Secondly, your true master is the one you actually serve. Look at verse 16. Paul says, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? Paul says, do you not know? This is, remember, he's speaking to the Christians in Rome, and he is saying to them, you really ought to know this already. Do you not know this? And as we've seen all along here in in Romans, Paul continually addresses your mind first. He addresses what you know before he tells you what to do because knowing leads to doing. And Paul says, do you not know this? If you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey. Right? It's common sense. If you obey a master, then you are a slave to that master. That's basically what Paul is saying. You are slaves to the one you actually serve, the one you actually obey is your master. And he gives two options of of masters here. One being sin, which leads to death. Doesn't really need a lot of explanation, a lot of of, uh, explaining on my part. Sin is a, is a, a cruel taskmaster and it's the result of serving that taskmaster is that it leads to death. But what does Paul mean here about the other master here of obedience, which leads to righteousness? Well, this is simply shorthand, I think, for the longer phrase, the obedience of faith. If you look back at Romans chapter 1, verse 5, Paul speaks of the obedience that, uh, let me just read the verse. It says, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. Later in in Romans chapter 6, Paul is going to exchange this term of obedience for other terms. He's going to say that we are slaves of righteousness. He's going to say that, probably most plainly, that we are slaves of God. Right. So there are two options here, to be a slave of sin or to be a slave to God, or to the obedience of faith, or to to righteousness, however you want to say it. And and look, here's the principle. In general, your service reveals your true 
master. Anyone can say, I serve God. Anyone can say that. But look at your life. Who do your actions reveal that you actually serve? I, I don't mean perfectly. The, the very presence of these commands in the scriptures indicates that this is going to be a struggle. Right? But who do your actions in general reveal that you actually serve? When I was a, a kid, my family had, we had a couple of dogs. We had two dogs at one time, which is always exciting. There were two golden retrievers. We named them Hershey and Ditto because the second one looked just like the first one. Now Hershey put the, the retriever in golden retriever. And she had this, this really super bouncy rubber orange ball that she just absolutely loved. And anytime you took her outside, she would frantically look around for this orange ball and she would bring it to you and drop it at your feet. You would throw it as hard as you could. She would go blazing after it and she'd bring it back, drop it at your feet. You could do that with her all day. And God forbid you stand in her way. If that ball gets, gets thrown across the yard and you were in its path, there was a number of times I got, I got knocked down, right? I honestly believe that that ball had a greater mastery over that dog than we did, right? Her dog collar might have had our name on it, but in her heart, she lived for that ball, I think it illustrates this point. Your true master is the one you actually serve. A little bit more crass of an illustration here. The other dog, Ditto, you had to watch her like a hawk. Or if you turned your back for a moment, she would eat her own droppings. Sorry to gross you out this morning, but it, I think it's, a, it's an illustration here of, of the flesh right? Serving. We could punish her for that. We could do whatever we wanted to do that. But you turned your back for a moment. She was back at her filth. You, your true master is the one you actually serve. And make no mistake here, third point, you will be mastered. You will be mastered by something or someone. You will be. You will be. Either by God or by sin. There's no third option where you are free from both God and sin. In fact, any notion that you will not be mastered is basically viewing yourself as God. And you are not God. You are a created being. Created in the image of God as part of His creation to serve and glorify Him. What does Colossians 1.16 say? That all things were created by Him and what? For him. You were created by him and for him. And you will serve something. If it's not him, if you turn away from him, you reject him, then you will serve your new taskmaster, which is sin. You are a creature created to serve. People think I'm the master of me. I've got this. I don't I don't serve God, but I don't serve anybody else either. I, I'm my own master. I'm the boss of me. People think that in self-mastery they will find freedom, but freedom from God is no freedom at all. 
Freedom from God is actually bondage to sin. You will be mastered. Fourthly, from the, I'm getting all this from verse 16, just logical conclusions from this verse. You can't serve both God and sin. You can't do it. I hate false dichotomies. I hate it when people try to wrongly limit my options down to either this or this. Try to make something black or white. I, I often want to say, really, is there, there's no nuance, there's no third option. I'm pretty creative. I can usually think of another way to do something. But this is not a, a false dichotomy. It's a true dichotomy. The options really are this black and white. You can either serve God or you can serve sin, but you cannot serve God and sin. Jesus himself taught this principle in Matthew 6, 24. He said, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Jesus applied this principle specifically to the idolatry of money. In the very next phrase of that verse, I think you know it, it says you cannot serve both God and money. You could also say you cannot serve both God and sin in general or any other idol. Now there is nuance here though. Even though I'm giving you a a black and white uh, dichotomy that you must choose there is nuance here, of course. And the nuance is that, there, that this is going to be a struggle. None of us serves God perfectly. But once again, what is the general trajectory of your life? Are you serving God or are you serving sin? Has there been a transfer of masters in your life? Do you long to serve your new master, God? Or do you long to cease any service to that old tyrant of sin. If someone who didn't know you were a fly on the wall in your home or in your workplace, who would they think that you served? Would there be enough evidence to convict you of serving God? Or has grace been of little to no effect in your life? Has grace mastered you? Is your life difficult to distinguish from anyone else out in the world who doesn't even claim to know God? You cannot serve both God and sin. Fifthly, you should thank God for a changed heart. I get this from the next two verses here. Lest we get discouraged here, Paul says, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. read a commentator by the name of Tom Schreiner this week and he alerted me to, to sort of stop and consider this little outburst of thanksgiving that Paul gives here. But thanks be to God. He says, the thanksgiving must not be passed over lightly. What must be observed is that God is the one who rescued them from sin's dominion. It's due to his work that they have become obedient from the heart to the gospel. 
My friends, if you see evidence of a changed heart in your life, then thank God for that, right? Don't despair of this. I, 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 I know that there, invariably, when I teach on this kind of a topic, there are some people out there with really oversensitive consciences who, because they, are, they, they still struggle with sin, will despair. But let me encourage you to, if you look in your life and you see evidence of God in your life that where you once loved your sin, now you hate it. And you're struggling against your sin and you, you, you're, you're striving and praying and asking God to deliver you from your sin, even if it's still a struggle. Thank God for that. Right? If you see evidence that you, you are obeying God, even, if, even imperfectly, from the heart, then give God the glory for that. Thank Him for that. That's what, what Paul does here. Is he's, the, the Roman Christians about this, he redirects them to what God has done and, and is already doing. You know, back in the Old Testament, God promised us a new and better covenant. The new covenant. And he promised that one day his law wouldn't be something that's merely external, but it would become something that's internal to us, something that's spirit-empowered. I love those descriptions of the new covenant because that's not something for us that's future. I mean, can you imagine reading about the new covenant while you were still under the law in the old covenant and reading about this, this time, this future time when the spirit of God would actually be poured out in your heart and you would actually want to obey God's laws. That's, that's the days that we live in. Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26, describes this new covenant. It says, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Listen, the the human heart is so hard and gnarled and self-contained and stony. The, The scriptures describe it like a hard stone. And God says that he, he would one day take that heart of stone out of you and he would put in you a heart of flesh so that you might be obedient to him from the heart. If you see in your life a tenderness, to a, a desire to from the heart obey God, then thank God for that. That's nothing short of a miracle. Notice how back in, in Romans chapter 6 here, Verse 18, Paul expresses these things in the passive voice. He, he expresses it in this way. Look at, look at verse 18. He says, and having been set free. He doesn't say, and you set yourself free. He says, having been set free by God from sin. And having become slaves of righteousness. Right? God God is the one doing it. We are not the ones that have, have done it. God is the one who has done it. So we, we ought to thank him. This is Paul reminding us again of who we are, of the indicative of what is true about us already in Christ, before once again reminding us of what we ought to do, giving us a, a command or an imperative. Because the command is going to come in the next verse, verse 19. 
And that brings me to my sixth point here. You should actively present yourself to your new master. Verse 19. Paul just got done describing the fact that we have become slaves of righteousness. And the beginning of verse 19 here has a, a little bit of a, of a sidetrack here as he acknowledges the, the, the limitations of any metaphor. I'm, I'm cognizant of this all the time. You know, as I'm using a metaphor, like the metaphor I used earlier of my dogs, you can only press those, those illustrations so far, right? It's just an illustration. Don't take it, don't press it too far. Well, I think here, as Paul is speaking in human terms about slavery, he also doesn't want you to press that too far, right? He says in verse 19, he says, I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. Right? So there's some, some ways in which speaking of being slaves of righteousness is really helpful, right? Because in our relationship with God, slavery really captures this idea of complete surrender, com- complete obedience, he is the Lord. We are his servants. But we don't want to also import into that metaphor any sort of negativity because, you know, who wants to be a slave, right? There's, there's some limitations to the metaphor, but, and Paul acknowledges that. But he says here, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. But look at the second half of the verse here in verse 19. He says, For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. This is a command here. It's a command to actively present the various members and capacities of your body to righteousness, to God, which leads to sanctification, to holiness. Just as in your old life, you used to present yourself intentionally to the sins that pleased you or the sins to which you were even enslaved. So now you are to actively present your members to righteousness. That is to the God who works righteousness in you. If you used to fill your ears with music that caused you to meditate on, on sin. Now give your ears to God that he might fill them with his praises. If you used to use your eyes to look at things that were inappropriate, now you should actively turn your eyes to Jesus and be transformed. If you used your tongue to tear down and to gossip, Or to tell lies. Now give your tongue to him that he might actively use it to build others up. If you used to use your hands to steal or to serve yourself. Now you should give your hands to God that he might use them to serve others. I I said this a couple weeks ago. Christianity is not just about what you don't do. It's not just about stopping certain things. It's about Reckoning yourself dead to sin in that old uh, master and reckoning yourself at the same time alive to God. We don't want to just stop doing things. We want to give ourselves to God and and to begin doing 
the things that God commands us to do. We, we, we deny ourselves the sinful fleshly desires and we, we instead give ourselves to the, the new godly desires that he places into our hearts. As I said, we've discussed this before because this really is a re-emphasizing of what Paul has already said in verse 13. Remember, church, that that we're talking about sanctification here. And sanctification is something that can be spoken of as being already true about you and at the same time not yet true about you. I said this a couple weeks ago. There's a sense in which you have already been sanctified positionally. You are already holy. You are already set apart. Paul already referred to the, the people, the Christians that he would write to, he already referred to them as saints, holy ones. And such you are, church. But there's another sense in which God wants you to progressively and actually become holy even in this life. There's a sense in which you are not yet holy. God has declared you to be holy in one sense, but he wants you to actually become what he has already declared you to be. And it's a process. Even though in this life you will never be made perfect, Anyone who teaches you that is setting you up for some despair. Even though in this life you will never be made perfect, we are called to enter into the struggle to be holy as God is holy. And it will be a lifelong journey, a lifelong struggle, a lifelong war to be honest. And it will, yes, you will, you will progress in holiness. God is doing something in your life. He is busy conforming you into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. As you walk with God over the years, you should progressively grow to be more and more like Jesus. But not perfectly so. But God if he has his hands on you, will not leave you alone. He will sanctify you. He will shape you into the image of Christ. And this process will culminate on the day that God has determined. When you lay aside this this mortal body and then you one day are resurrected and you put on the heavenly body and you are resurrected to new eternal life. And he glorifies you. Then we will be truly, perfectly free to always serve God rightly. That will be true freedom, my friends. Right now we have been freed up to no longer choose the sin, but we, we are free to choose the good. But the, the sin option is still there. One day when when we go to be with him, that option to sin will no longer be there and we will be truly free. That is our hope. 
But listen, in this life, no one becomes automatically like Jesus. Nobody accidentally becomes like Jesus. <laughs> it doesn't just happen. I, I mean, don't get me wrong. I, I, I have heard testimonies, and even in my own life, there, there have been temptations or struggles with sin that God just takes away in a moment. Right, what, what used to be attractive to me suddenly becomes just like repulsive. Right, have you had that experience? But there are other areas in your life that you will probably continue to struggle with your whole life. And it's a war. It's a, a process, a, a daily effort in cooperation with the Spirit of God in your heart to gladly surrender your all to Him, your new master. Replacing your old sinful desires and habits with new godly ones. And it's an active process that calls for all your effort in cooperation with him. Now, I always like to, to clarify here, when I talk about cooperating with God in sanctification, I like to clarify what I don't mean by that. What I don't mean is that, that God does his part. Maybe he does his 50%, or maybe God does 75%, and then it's up to me to make up the remaining 50 to 25%. That's not what I mean by cooperating with God in your sanctification. Sanctification is God's work in your life, 100%. God does it. Anything of eternal significance that's accomplished is going to be accomplished by him. But oh, by the way, in addition to that, we are called to work too. But it's not a 50-50 or a 75-25. It's God working 100% and we join him in that. It's not an on-off switch like now God's working but I'm not. Now God stopped working and now it's my turn. It's both of us turned on, alive to one another, working together as he works out his purposes in my life. I really like the way John Murray put it. He said, God's working in us in sanctification is not suspended or stopped because we work. Nor is our working suspended because God works. Neither is the relation strictly one of cooperation as if God did his part and we did ours so that the coordination of both produced the required result. Here's the part I really like of this quote. God works, and, God works in us and we also work. But the relation is that because God works, we work. I hope you don't think I'm splitting theological hairs because this is, this is important to understand. That even though the, the scriptures call you to work towards holiness, that the, the real power of it comes in our unity with, with Christ. And it is really his work in us. Sanctification is a war. We've seen here in Romans chapter 6 that as Paul has called us to present your members as instruments, that word there, instruments, is literally weapons. We are to present our members as weapons or instruments to God. It's a war between the passions of the flesh and the newfound godly desires of your heart. And we're going to I don't have to say it all this morning, even though I'm tempted to. We're going to be talking about this for the next couple of weeks as we make our way through Romans chapter 7 and 8. 
Paul says, present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Seventh here, my, my, my last point. You should always remember the benefits. Look at verses 20 through 23. Paul says, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit that you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You know, before coming to Christ, I valued and longed for greater freedom to do what I wanted to do. Do you remember those days in your life? And it seemed life-giving to pursue what I wanted. And by contrast, as I, as I heard the commands of God, as I, as I would read the Bible or have it taught to me, man, obeying God seemed so constricting. It seemed almost suffocating. It seemed like slavery. But ironically, the opposite ended up being what was true. The temporary season of pleasure afforded by sin quickly gives way to the wages of sin, which is death. Meanwhile, slavery to God, being, having Him be your master and you serving Him, results in the fruit of eternal life. And it begins right now. It begins now and there is hope of life for all eternity. You know, we often use Romans 6.23 in evangelism, don't we? For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And it's good that we use that in evangelism because it's, it's a, a really good summary of the teaching of Romans 1 through 6. But keep in mind, Paul is applying Romans 6.23 to Christians. He's applying it to Christians in the trenches who are actively seeking to die to their old master of sin and to be alive to their new master who is God. And he's encouraging them to remember and exult in the benefit of your service to God. Your slavery to God, which is eternal life. Though sometimes sin seems like it's going to be so life-giving and refreshing, we of all people ought to know better. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. In comparing and contrasting these two outcomes in this verse, let me ask you this question. Whom do you want to serve? Choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. True freedom is freedom to worship and serve God. If you've never received God's free gift of salvation, the way is open before you this morning. Jesus died for your sins on the cross 
set you free from sin. And he rose again from the grave in victory over death so that all who repent of their sins and call upon his name will be saved. Won't you receive that free gift this morning? For those of you, the majority of you who are here week in and week out and have already done that, let me urge you in closing to use your freedom in Christ to actively serve Him. Let me urge you to repent of your sins. Reckon yourself dead to sin and alive to God. Don't be like the the many children of Israel who were brought out of their bondage from slavery to Egypt and yet they longed to go back. Many of them, you know, brought their bondage with them. They brought their, their idols and their sin with them into the wilderness. And even though they saw God oh, part the, the Red Sea, even though they saw the pillar of of cloud that, that was the presence of God by day and the, the pillar of fire by night that was the presence of God by night, even though they saw, that, saw him, even though they heard him rumble from, from the mountain and saw great deliverances, they still, the moment that, that Moses was gone for a few moments, what did they do? They made a golden calf. And the scripture says they sat down to feast And they rose up to play. And they viewed their newfound freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Don't use your freedom in Christ as a freedom for yourself to live in sin. But use your freedom in Christ to serve your new master, the living God, in fellowship with him every day. Take advantage of the benefit of knowing him and fellowshipping with him. Make it your first and highest privilege every morning when you get up. Every midday as you walk with him. And every night as you put your head down on your pillow. Look to the benefit of eternal life with the living God. And so grow in your sanctity and your hope. Let's pray. Father, we come before you here this morning at the close of our service. Lord, confessing to you, Lord, our sinfulness. Lord, none of us, none of us serves you, our new master, perfectly, Lord. We fall short in many, many ways. But Lord, we long to serve you. We long to be holy as you are holy. Father, I pray for this church, Lord, I pray for every member of this church, Lord, that we might, Lord, this week say no to sin and say yes to you. God, fill us with your spirit. Lord, help us not to trust in ourselves, but to trust in you. And God, give us hope that, Lord, the good work that you started in us, you will bring to completion. Father, I pray for those this morning within the sound of my voice, Lord, who maybe would confess that even now they, are, they know that they are living in unrepentant sin, that they're not serving you, that they're 
openly serving another master. God, I pray that you would call them to repentance, Lord, even now. And Father, for those who have never turned to you, God, may today be the day, Lord, press upon their hearts that, Lord, today is the day of salvation. Let them not walk home or drive home from this place today unchanged. Lord, we pray these things now in Jesus' name.